What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The state budget continues to dominate the news in Ohio because of all the shenanigans and craven attempts to inject controversial measures into it without discussion. We'll be talking about some of those today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with the full house of our regulars, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, Layla Atassi. It's a Monday, but it's a Monday of a of heading into a holiday week. We have to work five days, but there's a holiday at the end, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I yeah, you... put it the calendar. I was like, oh, wow, it's July 4th already coming up. No, it just seems like it every big, summer. Big Independence weekend. That's yeah. right. My favorite kind of holiday of the whole year. It's the height of summer. It's festive. You don't have to buy gifts for anybody. It's, it's the way to go. <laughs> and it's summer just independence from the virus. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's the it's what we've said from the beginning in November. Independence Day will be our big coming out party from the virus. Let's begin. How has the backroom politics of the Ohio House jeopardized a name, image, and likeness bill for college athletes and with it, Ohio State University's ability to compete for top football recruits? Jane Cahoon, the House members have done all sorts of dastardly deeds in this budget crisis, but you don't mess with Ohio State Buckeyes. This could be their undoing. <laughs> well, who knows? But as we said, tis the season for lawmakers to try to shove through major policy changes without a, a full public vetting. You know, in, in addition to decorating the state budget like a Christmas tree, they're, they, um, they're also trying to pass a bunch of bills before they go on summer recess. So that's when we have we're seeing all these things pop up with them sticking unrelated things into other bills. So bear with me here because this one has some twists and turns. But in this case, we had a completely uncontroversial bill with with strong bipartisan support. It had passed the Ohio Senate unanimously. I'm talking about Senate Bill 187, which would allow college athletes to make money off their name, image, and likeness, uh, something other states have already passed. And colleges like Ohio State don't want to be left at a disadvantage. So they're really trying to get this thing across the finish line. So it was all, as I said, passed by the Senate unanimously. The House was poised to sign off on it last week. And it had an emergency measure in it so that it could take effect right away. But House Republicans, who control that chamber, they control the whole legislature, decided to add what became a, a poison pill for the Democrats. They put in this ban on transgender student athletes from competing in women and girls sports. So, you know, this is one of those uh, flashpoint issues for conservatives in this broader culture war over, you know, so-called traditional values. And the, the supporters were saying, you know, we need this because transgender girls born biologically male have an unfair advantage over other girls. And um, but the opponents say, you know, we're discriminating against kids here who are already vulnerable. This is a solution in search of a problem. And the Ohio High School Athletic Association already has a policy in place to deal with these types of situations. But anyway, Democrats were outraged over this. There was a bitter debate. At one point, the Democrats pounded their desks while one of the main sponsors was speaking, um, Representative Jenna Powell of Dark County. She, um, 
you know, they were trying to make a point of order. But anyway, they went ahead and passed this thing, the whole bill with the amendment. But they had to take out this emergency clause because the bill didn't have bipartisan support anymore. So they sent this whole mess to the Senate, uh, much to the disappointment of lawmakers like Senator Naraj Antani, who's been trying to pass this name, image, and likeness bill by July 1st. Um, the Senate leaders made it clear they, they didn't like the idea of putting this transgender ban into the bill without a full set of hearings so it could be vetted. Um, so they basically put it aside and then they gave it another try. They took this name, image, and likeness legislation and put it into another unrelated bill, a bill dealing with military IDs. And um, so they passed that. And then just for good measure, they also shoved the sports betting bill in there, you know, just to keep us on our toes, I guess. But anyway, so that all goes back to the House. The House didn't act on that Friday, even though they held quite a long session, but they're scheduled to meet today, although, of course, we have the budget to deal with. Um, the bill no longer has this emergency clause, but Antani said, you know, at least if it passes, Ohio State will be able to tell recruits that it's that it's on the books. Although, you know, who knows? We've got the budget to deal with today. That could be another vehicle for it, perhaps. I don't know. But um, and then just one more quick point of interest. Governor Mike DeWine came out against this transgender ban on Friday. He said this issue is best addressed outside of government through individual sports leagues and athletic associations, including the Ohio High School Athletic Association. Uh, they can tailor policies to meet the needs of the athletes. And um, so that was that was kind of interesting. Of course, he's already being labeled as a rhino by his opponents on the right, like Jim Renacci, who's challenging him uh, in the governor's race. So this is a rather big pile of, you know what, that. Well, the, the transgender is the, is the new wedge issue. It, it's one that the, the that some on the far right are using because they know there there are people that are somewhat confused by it all and have misgivings. And so they're, it, it, it's what they're using, but I I'm still surprised that they would mess with the name image and likeness bill because Ohio state is seeking five-star recruits and a bunch of states they compete with will have this in effect on July 1st. And I don't care what you say when you talk to them, you haven't put up the, the goods. It's a surprise that they torpedoed it. So the name image and likeness bill, that that started as a name image and like this bill that whole thing will probably be passed in some other legislation that's what's going to happen yeah yeah either the one that the senate put it into this military id thing or you know as i said we've said they've put plenty of things in the budget so that could be a possibility so we'll just have to watch i mean they're determined to pass it but yeah you know i'm with you it's like why you know why take something that is so universally supported and muck it up and regardless of how you feel on this issue i've said this so many times you know these bills should get a vetting they should be heard both sides should be able to weigh in i mean this is just not the way to do business but they do it all the time Can the I danger of oh, i'm sorry go ahead Layla Tassi. So we've talked over and over again about the single subject rule, which says that no bill shall contain more than one subject and that should be clearly expressed in the title. But this bill, the bill that the transgender issue ended up in and like half of the stuff shoved into the budget bill are all clearly in violation of the single subject rule. 
So how does that get enforced? How does one challenge a bill on the grounds that it violates that rule? Jane, I was wondering if you know that from you know your long history. Well, you got well, we to have... file a lawsuit. I mean, like the ACLU has challenged, you know, things like abortion restrictions that they've stuck in there. And there's just a mixed record of success in doing that. It takes a lot of money, takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, on this transgender thing, they could probably say, well, this deals with athletes, as does the name, image, and likeness thing. So there's we, no, you know. We had a pretty long discussion about that, I think, on a day you were off last week, Layla. Um, th- there is the danger, though, Jane, of if you put this into the budget bill, we discussed this about it's so egregious that the Supreme Court might have no choice but to start peeling things out. If they put the name, image and likeness into the budget bill, you could jeopardize it because there's so many things in there that get in the way of that. Right. Right. But then I guess you have to think about who would challenge that. Would anybody challenge it? But if you challenge the budget bill overall, if if different parties go in and say, look, this is ridiculous, and the Supreme Court is considering a bill that has, what what was the latest number, 28 pieces of separate? Oh, at least, separate, at least. That, you know, that they might just say, we're rejecting the whole thing. You can't, you can't do any of this. I mean, you'd have a hard time saying the name, image, and likeness is budget. You know, yeah. there are certain things you could say is budget, but you can't, that there's nothing about budget in that. So... I don't, I don't know, know that they've ever thrown out an entire state budget. But um, we've never had one this egregious either. <laughs> well, mm. I don't know. You, we could <laughs> go back and find some pretty <laughs> egregious ones. Actually, that would be a good story, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, right. another assignment. <laughs> All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Has the era of wine with the wine come to a formal end? Laura Johnston, you started talking about this about a month ago. Have these things reached their natural conclusion that the huge audience that the things had has gone away to where it's only a few hundred and they're mostly active in the comments saying crazy things. So what's the story here? Yes, officially after 168 briefings, Wine with the Wine is coming to an end. It's the end of an era. The most watched coronavirus news briefing was April 27th, 2020. That's 155,000 people saw it on the ohiochannel.org and its YouTube and Facebook pages. That doesn't reflect all the people who watched them on TV stations that carried that Ohio Channel feed or assumingly watched it on cleveland.com. Um, Compare that to 406 people last Thursday when DeWine was live online. And he's been doing for the last five weeks, he's been basically introducing the Vaximillion winners on Thursday mornings, the morning after the drawing, and also talking about some other things. But it wasn't that 2 p.m. appointment television that we all lived by for basically, you know, more than a year of our lives. At the beginning, it was seven days a week. Then it was five. Then we switched to two. But he even kind of acknowledged this on the briefing And Laura Hancock wrote a really nice story about it. He said, you know, I'm still going to be available. I've always been available. And if we need to, we'll come back. But yeah, I I don't think we'll be checking in every every afternoon for a while. There was was a while when people were desperate for every fact they could get about this. Mm -hmm. We could see it on our site. Everything we did was was, people were coming to in huge numbers where this was required watching. I mean, if you didn't watch it, you missed out on some news that could keep you safe, but they, they did become less and less useful. I mean, when he started talking about subjects that had nothing to do with the coronavirus, it almost started to seem like 
I've got you hostage. I'm going to campaign now. <laughs> well, that and he was showing the videos of like bands playing and like, you know, his TV commercials for to get the shot. But I mean, if you remember when those first started, we literally had nearly everybody on our staff watching them. We had a big teams channel. It was like, who's doing this? Who's doing this? You know, firing off everything he said was like a headline. Like it was like, we need another headline because it just kept making news. And, and Dr. Amy Acton would go on and she would tell everybody to don their capes and be a better person. And it was like this communal kind of FDR chat almost where like, so we were all stuck in our own houses, but at least we were all watching Mike DeWine together. Right. And, and I mean, there was literally nothing else to do at the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, we were watching him on weekends. I mean, once you finish like Tiger King on Netflix, there was nothing else to watch. <laughs> Can I jump in here? Jane Cahoon. Yeah. Well, first of all, is anyone going to miss those ties that he would uh, sport every day for the different teams? But um, the other thing is, you know, Mike DeWine has never been one to uh, shy away from public appearances. And especially with summer coming up and we're getting back into life. He loves parades. He's he is uh, has a history of making lots of public appearances. His spokesman noted that for Laura's story. And I don't think he's going to be, you know, uh, you know, behind the scenes here. I think he's going to be out there making various public appearances and availabilities still. No, he probably regrets that he lost the big audience. Leila Tassi. Was this actually called Wine with the Wine? (laughs) (laughs) Not not officially. Is that a real... No, no, it never was. That was just like, you know, when they had the animated Laverne and Shirley kind of intro, it's just like, I, you know, he's just this folksy personality and people okay. nicknamed it Wine with the Wine. And they also called it Snack and Wine. I didn't know that at, actually. At some point. So I think, I think it was just this idea of communal, literally, we have nothing to do all day. So, I mean, I was going to say, he just doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't right. strike me as like the day drinking type. So, well, you know, then <laughs> there were jokes about that. like making it a drinking game. Like every time DeWine said whatever word, you know, like you'd have to take a shot. Not that we ever did that. We were always working. But um, Jane, flatten I wonder. The curve. <laughs> exactly. Flatten the curve <laughs> would be a shot. Um, I feel like that tie collection, he could like auction that off yeah, or something. I mean, it was a, oh, that's a good idea. tie collection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but 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 put it in perspective. During a period of great angst by the people of Ohio, Mike DeWine and for a time Amy Acton got in front of Ohio every day, a calming influence, providing information, soothing words to get people through. And I don't think anyone's going to forget that. I mean, that's that's what the purpose of it was. It it got co-opted by nonsense at some point and let's not forget it was the daily defense of the unemployment system by john houston (laughs) that was part of the entertainment but it was but it was something that you would expect from a leader or hope from a leader to try and and soothe the anxiety of the the people that they they serve and he did that so absolutely and i just want to add obviously he took questions every time i mean this was never like him standing up and being like that's it other than his prime time addresses he always took questions from reporters right including reporters who had an axe to grind and would go at him and he did stand there gracefully each day and uh and answer and them. the questions or avoid <laughs> answering the questions. <laughs> okay. Wow. You guys are a lively bunch. Today. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> it's this week in the CLE. 
Why are some people wary of the Ohio House bill to criminalize disobeying police? Leila Tassi, I thought it already was a crime to disobey a lawful police order. Is it not? Yeah. So this is House Bill 22, which passed on Friday, is now headed to the Ohio Senate. It expands the crime of obstructing justice to include failing to follow a lawful order from police, distracting officers by throwing things at them, or coming close enough to touch them without the officer's consent. Supporters of the bill say it's meant to protect law enforcement and prevent confrontations from escalating. And violating the bill, I mean, it's pretty serious. It'd be second-degree misdemeanor punishable by up to 90 days in jail and a $750 fine. But if a violator's actions are found to risk physical harm to any person, the charge would rise to a fifth-degree felony, which could bring a year in prison and $2,500 in fines. But it's so easy to see how something like this can be abused and turned against peaceful protesters. And those are exactly the arguments that detractors and civil rights groups are making. They say it's the language is so ambiguous. What constitutes a distraction, for example? Everything at a protest could be a distraction. One House Democrat posed the question, you know, what about throwing glitter at police or yelling at an officer? Aren't those distractions? Yet those are things that happen at peaceful protests. Interestingly, I I thought this was interesting, State Representative Shane Wilkin, a Highland County Republican who's co-sponsoring the bill, offered the scenario in which a protester who's standing nose to nose with a police officer is then pushed by someone else into the officer, leading to a police response. And he says, you know, about an arm's length from the officer is what we're asking for to avoid gas being thrown on the fire. This is for the protection of both parties. But I kind of feel like that example actually perfectly makes the case against the bill, because what if it's police officers who are breaching that arm's length distance? You as a protester are still in violation of the law. And he he suggests, you know, if someone pushes the person into the police officer, that's not the fault of the person who's been pushed. And yet they are still violating the law. There are just endless ways that law enforcement can take advantage of the ambiguity of this to unduly arrest people. Um, that's that's my take on it. So what do you think? So, so what's a lawful order? Like if, if a cop tells me to kill somebody, that's not a lawful order. But but anything that's not a crime is a lawful order. I, I, when, when you see things like you, you have to obey a lawful order by the police, I don't know what that means. I don't know. I don't know either. And and I I can imagine a scenario where, you know, the police are, are sort of forcing groups in mass out of places because they the people are trying to avoid breaching that that gap, you know, that arm's length gap between them. And, uh, you know, I, I just there's so, so much that's ripe for abuse here. And, uh, oh, man. We'll have to see what happens with it then. Yeah. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Last week was a whirlwind of secret moves to shove controversial and questionable policies into the state budget so that they wouldn't have to be discussed in hearings and committees at the state house. What's the deadline for this budget, Jane Cahoon, and what do we expect in the meantime? Well, uh, they're supposed to have a conference committee report this morning as we speak, in, in fact. And then the House has a session uh, scheduled for 1 p.m., and the Senate has a, ske- a session scheduled for 1.30 p.m., but, you know, they hardly ever start on time. So it could be one of those marathon days if they haven't uh, uh, gotten all their ducks in a row. And, and they tend to, like, go into caucus and, and chat behind the scenes and scheme and maneuver and, and so forth. But it's it's going to be 
a Herculean effort for us to track all of the things that they have tucked in there to see if they remain in the in the budget or whether they add more. You know, uh, another thing to keep an eye on after the uh, revenue forecast started to look a little rosier. Senate President Matt Huffman said last week that that they might even consider uh, broadening the the five percent income tax cut that they've got in the in the budget. So, you know, who knows what could happen? the The legal deadline for this is eleven fifty nine p.m. on Wednesday, because the new fiscal year starts on Thursday, July first. So, but they test my memory. They've they've actually missed that. White in the past, like the, the or, or turned uh, it over it to has, the governor so late that he took a few days to. Yeah, to, and they've they've passed like a patchwork, you know, temporary thing to to get them through, but um, I don't know if that's going to happen this time. I you know they seem to be determined to get this done uh, before before the deadline, and but, gosh, the fact that they might even act on it today, you know, two days before they legally have to is, uh, you know, something. But the governor does need time to go through to find all the sneaky things they put in to decide whether or not he will veto them by line item. Because it's a budget bill, he has a line item veto, right? Yes, he does. So, mm. so <laughs> as Amelia Sykes need... said recently, Governor, ink up your pen. There's a lot. There's a lot in there. So yes, he so does he might... need time. Yeah, he might need more than a couple of days to figure out what what all is in there. We certainly will. It's this week in the CLE. Why are people ages 12 to 30 not getting vaccinated in large numbers for the coronavirus? And what might that ultimately mean for everybody? Laura Johnston, that Delta variant is taking over the world. It's a scary, scary evolution of this virus. And young people are actually getting it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's spreading the fastest. And and I'm really intrigued by this question because when I kind of thought about it, I was like, young people are the do-gooders, right? They're idealistic to be the first in line to want to help society. So why are they not getting vaccinated? We have rates through Thursday. Uh, Julie Washington did a story for us. It was 39% for those in their 20s, about 30% for those ages 12 to 19. I, I can understand if you're still a kid and your parents, you know, that's a different situation. But if you're in your 20s, it's your own decision. And I guess there's just a lot of reasons. And a lot of it has to do with infertility. Some There's these rumors that are spread on social media that you could be infertile if you're vaccinated. And I think that is probably affecting a lot of young women. And other misinformation, as well as this need to question authority and, you know, the politicization of vaccines, because think about it. It's not like every Ohioan is vaccinated. The vaccination rate exceeds 70% for every age group over 60, but we're still about 48% overall. So you could have people that just for political reasons don't want to get vaccinated. Well, it'd be interesting to see whether if we get a wave of it in this country, it, it's taken hold big time in, in Great Britain and some other places. But if, if, it goes as it is predicted to go in the United States and really starts to create some pockets of surge, whether that might impress young people enough to go and get the shot. Yeah, I think think it'll have to hit people their own age, right? If they have this, I'm invincible, I'm young, I'm healthy kind of idea about themselves and they think only old people die, so I don't really care. I mean, if people their own age start getting sick, you think that they're going to watch that and see that and say, okay, I'm going to get vaccinated now. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
Harmon Budish said when he was first elected county executive that the county had no borrowing ability because it was tapped out. But now he says he can borrow about a billion dollars. Leila Tassi, what's the real story? Well, this is another good one by Courtney Astolfi. This all stems from Budish's State of the County speech, uh, you know, earlier this summer when he got a question from a viewer who turned out to be Republican candidate for county executive Lee Weingart. Lee, uh, Weingart asked how the county intended to pay for a $500 million new jail when the county's already buried in debt and has zero capacity to borrow more. And Budish immediately took offense to the question. Perhaps he was guessing who asked it because he asked, he said that the questioner had no idea what he was talking about and that in fact, fact, the county has plenty of debt capacity, a billion dollars worth, in fact, and that Budish wouldn't need to seek a new tax to pay for a jail. This, however, as you said, seemed to be in just stark contrast to what Budish had to say when he came to our reporters and editors in 2015 at the start of his first term. And he said that at that time, the county had tapped out its credit card and would have to rethink a number of projects that were on the horizon because the county would be saddled with debt for at least the next decade at that time. He said the same thing to county council at the time and blamed the problem on the administration of his predecessor, Ed Fitzgerald. So Courtney took a dive into the topic to figure out why this turnabout. And, and she discovered that although the county currently has $1.26 billion in debt, by 2027, almost half of that debt will come off the books. Listeners can read her story for all the great detail on the debt itself. But but in the meantime, the county can legally borrow more. But it's a question of whether it's wise to do it. The county says the budget has been balanced every year. The reserves are strong. They refinanced some of their debt and saved millions of dollars that way. So the county's in a good position to borrow more. But Courtney poked a lot of holes in that argument. The general fund was not balanced in 2018 and 2019, according to budget records. And though there was a surplus in 2020 due to reduced pandemic expenses and this big infusion of federal aid, Budish's budget director in May said the general fund was projected to end 2021 with a $20 million deficit. The county's bond rating is still decent, but it's been downgraded after the county took on debt for the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse and Metro Health projects. And without federal COVID relief funds, the county reserves would be dwindling. So, yeah, the county can take on new debt, but should it? How would the county pay it back? Those are questions that have you know been laid at Budish's feet, and uh, we'll have to see how he answers those. Well, he's a little bit between a rock and a hard place. He couldn't have foreseen, or maybe he could have in 2015, what was ahead. But this year, one of these days, the the deal to greatly renovate Progressive Fields is going to come out. That's right. going to include county money, city money, possibly state money. So, you know, how do you justify spending money on that if at the same time you're saying we're broke, we have no borrowing ability People are going to say, why are you using your limited resources then to help a baseball field? He, he's going to be in a tough spot. That's going to be very controversial when it breaks because, of course, it's a mayoral election year. But I guess he has to be able to, to, to be able to provide money for progressive field. He's going to have to be able to convince people that their budget's OK, even though, as Courtney has shown, it's certainly not. Uh, so good stuff. Right. Check out Courtney's story on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How do Ohio lawmakers want to use a third of that big batch of coronavirus aid dollars that Ohio received from the federal government? Jane Cahoon, they're going to try and help business with this, huh? 
Yes, they certainly are. They've approved plans to use that money to repay the Fed's $1.5 billion that the state borrowed <clears throat> excuse me, to help pay this unprecedented number of unemployment claims that they got during the pandemic. Uh, this is a big chunk of the more than $5 billion Ohio's getting from the American Rescue Plan. So House Bill 168 uh, passed a final House vote Friday, and it now heads to Governor Mike DeWine. He's the one who first proposed using that money uh, out of this more than $5 billion that Ohio expects to get from the uh, COVID relief uh, money. So yes, this does make employers very happy because they're not going to get burdened with this. Uh, you know, if, if Ohio doesn't pay back the loan by September, the feds would begin charging interest. And, um, you know, so the, the employers, it's just a ripple effect on employers who pay the premiums okay. and so forth. But, so, uh, let me ask you this, though. So he's willing to take a gigantic block of money to help employers with unemployment, but he's the same guy that took the $300 a week away from the employees who are unemployed. Yes, he is, Chris. <laughs> so what's your point? <laughs> well, it's just it's an interesting comparison. It's a, that's a huge expense that is coming off of the employers, but he's kind of stuck it to the people we're in the hardship of not having jobs. I'm sorry. I just wanted to point out that the, that the unemployment benefits program has just been beset with problems long before the pandemic, and nobody can seem to agree on how to fix it. So anyway. But, but, but the 300 bucks that he took away from people was federal money that we would never have had to pay back. So he basically cut off money from the unemployed right. that carried no burden for Ohio, but he's taking care of the employer's burden by using this big block of money that otherwise might have been able to install broadband and, and done all sorts of good things. There's a contrast in approach here uh, that's coming from the DeWine administration. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla.